Welcome to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Dell challenges the status quo, questions everything, and empowers you to return to your core beliefs to make your life better. If you're ready to hear the truth and get your roadmap to the lifestyle you really want, the next hour will change your life. And now, your host, self-made millionaire, national award-winning investor of the year, CEO and founder of Lifestyles Unlimited, Del Wamsley. Welcome to the Del Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and the help begins. I'm your host, Del Wamsley, and as always, we're working on your financial freedom. Today, my friends, we're going to hit the mailbag again. I've got some long emails, and I know that reading an email is not the way a radio show is supposed to go. But I'm not going to do it where I'm just reading it. I'm going to take it apart paragraph by paragraph. We analyze some of the comments made in each of the emails and uh, make little mini topics out of each one of those. The first email I get is subject is called A Contrarian View. It starts by reading, Dear Dell, thanks for reading my email on your show for the answer to my question. As I said, I own a property in Arizona but hope to invest in West Virginia. I live in Arizona but the property isn't in Phoenix. It's about an hour and a half north in a small little town called Rimrock. Cows walk across the front lawn on a regular basis. Okay, I know nothing about this small town, but typically small towns are harder to lease in. The quality of the clientele is degraded because there's just not that many people there. Most of them that are there, there is not really good paying jobs in most small towns. Now, this is some really large amount of um, generalizations I'm throwing at you here. I know that here in the Houston area, when we went out into the rural areas and started leasing in the rural areas, you started seeing a very quick decline in the quality of tenants. So I don't know what this is like. Uh, I have been to Arizona. I know what's north of Arizona. I know what kind of land it is. It's a pretty interesting area, territory. It goes on and says, at any rate, like a typical type A person, let's stop it right there. A type A person is someone who is driven by instantaneous gratification disease. It means they want something now. They can't wait. They, they don't take a real deep analysis of the situation. They're more interested in getting something accomplished, getting it done. And so they make very quick moves. They take action relatively easily, which is a positive on one side. On the other side, they jump at things that they hadn't thought through completely right. He starts this paragraph by saying, I'm a typical type A person, and goes on with, I asked for your advice and then did something else without waiting for your advice. So the advice for this was, right now, interest rates are very, very low. Prices are very, very high. And he wanted to know, should he sell his property or, you know, what options did he have? And I said, you should probably just keep it and refinance it. Pull the money out at a very low interest rate. Keep yourself a long-term hold. You know, get the money out. And he had enough money, he could have refinanced out everything he had. And he had very little in this property, according to the explanation he'd given before. All right? So I said, I did something else even after not waiting for your advice. I ended up selling the property on a five-year lease option. The buyer's down payment gives me back all the cash I have in the deal, so I'm meeting the first rule, don't lose money. Well, that's not really what the first rule is, because you could still lose money on this deal. But nonetheless, I understand the point he's making. He now has net zero in this thing, so whatever happens to it, he doesn't have to worry about it. 
if it takes him longer than six months to execute the option, I'll be eligible for a 1031. In other words, he will have owned it for at least two years, and he'll be eligible for it. I just want to step back and talk about lease purchase agreements. I don't like lease purchase agreements. I refuse to use them unless they were using them for me. I would never give a lease purchase option to someone. Why? Well, let's take a look at it. Historically speaking, I've been doing this 30 years. I've been watching every type of something for nothing. Midnight madness real estate guru come up with trick ways to buy and sell properties. And lease purchase has been around forever. But here's what I typically see. When you lease purchase a property to somebody, that person in their mind is buying that property. Meaning that if they were a tenant, somebody's a tenant in my house, okay? And I'm renting them my house. They can't decide to change the wall colors. They can't tear out walls. They can't, you know, dig up flower beds. They they can't change the building. That's part of the lease agreement. But if you have a lease option, it may even say in there you don't have the right to do those things, but the reality is the people think they're buying it. And they're thinking in their minds, well, I can do whatever I want to because, you know, once I close on this thing, I'm going to own it. It's not going to really matter. So I might as well, I'm, I'm buying it. In their brain, they're buying it. So what problem does that lead to? Well, most of the time they destroy the property. I mean, pretty much you come in, I've come in, had walls painted blue, enamel blue, with the countertops painted bright racing car yellow. It's just craziness. And I've seen people do this and do these lease purchases, and I've consulted them, and that's the kind of stuff you're getting back. I've seen it where they've taken, the person was so mad because they couldn't actually buy it after they leased it for some period of time. They were so mad that they couldn't come up with the financing to buy it that they stole all the fixtures, all the electrical wiring, copper, plugged up the toilets with concrete because they feel ripped off because they thought they were buying it. And in their brain, those payments, they put a large down payment down. This guy said the guy put enough down payment down to get out all the money he had in it. But he's sitting there right now thinking he owns the thing. And when he finds out he can't close, they say, well, why can't he close? Well, why do you think a person does a lease purchase in the first place? Why would you want a lease purchase when you could simply go and get a mortgage and buy the person out? But you don't buy the person out because you can't. And you can't now, you probably can't five years from now when the interest rates are two or three points higher. So it's a big problem. Number two, let's say the guy stops paying you. Well, when they were a tenant, all you had to do was evict them on a lease, which is about a, anywhere from a 15 to 30-day process in most states. But if this guy's on a lease purchase agreement, He has ownership rights, and you can't evict him. You now have to foreclose on him in most states. Of course, the ones that I'm in, that's what you have to do. So that doesn't happen overnight. That's not like going down to the courthouse and paying 12 bucks and and 65 bucks and evicting the guy. This is like getting an attorney, showing up of court and proving that you have the right to get the property back. And again, when you get it back, it might be completely destroyed. So not a good thing. The next point is whether the guy buys it or doesn't buy it. Let's say he buys it. Five years from now, at the end of this lease purchase, this property might be worth double what you sold it to him for. Might be worth more, a lot more, maybe even double in five years. And this person that's on the lease purchase is getting the benefit of that gain. You're not. Man, it just doesn't make sense to me. And literally, 
the next step from this is, okay, they want you to own or finance it for them, in which case you run into all other kinds of problems. It's just bizarre. Point of fact, he didn't do what I told him to do. He admits that. Point of fact, too, he did something that I would have told him never to do if he would have asked me directly. Now, why am I bringing this up? I've been consulting for 30 years. And people go, well, not every deal can be perfect, Dell. They don't turn out perfect every time. No, they don't. The ones that don't turn out perfect are the ones that don't listen to 30 years of experience. People are all the time trying to reinvent the wheel because of their personal politics, their personal emotional stability, their lack of business understanding skills. They do it their way and not the right way. Most common thing to hear from people when they come to my two-day seminar was always this. I thought you were talking to me. Everything you said that was wrong is what I did. Everything you said, how it should have been, I didn't do it that way. And so, my friends, because of that, I make people write in the back of the book when they start the seminar on day one, turn to the back of the book and write this in the back of the book. And this is what I make them say. I will not do what Dell said to do. And then, when anything goes wrong, we pull out the book. In the last segment, we... uh, covered an email of a gentleman who said that he didn't follow my advice even after he'd asked me for it. That same gentleman went on a lengthy tirade here uh, on the rest of the email that I actually think is pretty interesting. And so I want to get it across to you and let it be something that you think about, see if you agree with it or not. Uh, it, It goes like this. At any rate, you often say in the radio that interest rates will go up. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because inflation's at 40 year high. And uh, the Fed's already said they're going to raise the interest rates. But listen to his point of view on this, because he's got a different view. He said, I disagree. Interest rates cannot be raised because of the huge debt the federal government has. Right now, interest payments consume 15 percent of the budget at rates between one and one and a half percent. If interest rates go up to, say, three, four and a half percent, not that high by historical standards, the interest payments will consume 45 percent of the budget. This is unsustainable. This is a theory that I've heard many, many times, that the government can't let interest rates go up. They just can't. And if they don't let interest rates go up, how are they going to stop inflation? In the Jimmy Carter years, they let interest rates go all the way up to 12 percent. That's what they had to do to stop the inflation. If they don't do that, what are they going to do? Well, here's his opinion. He says, what will happen is two things. First, jawboning stage. The heads of government and the Federal Reserve will talk about how they plan to raise interest rates. Not immediately, mind you, but down the road. The goal is to convince speculators not to speculate. Those people believe that prices are going up, not because they have printed their way to not because they have printed way too much money, but because speculators are speculating too high. Not saying I agree or disagree with this position, but I want to tell you something I heard the other day on TV that really aligns with this theory when you get to it. And that is, I heard the president's council or the CNN people or somebody, somebody on TV was saying, look, what's going on right now is that businesses are making all-time historical record profits and that, yes, they're paying more for the materials that they're selling you, but they are marking those materials up radically. And that's what's creating the inflation. It's the treacherous business owners. Now, if you think about it that way, 
that falls into the philosophy that everything is about speculation. It's just all about investors and, and business owners. They're the ones that are destroying the world, not the government, not the Democrats, not the feds. It's those terrible investors, those speculators and those business people that are marking up their goods way further than what they're being marked up on themselves. Wow. When you put those two ideas together, you can see there's a push for that belief system that it's really not the government's fault. And that's what the Dems are going to run on this year, the next mid-election. They're going to run on that. They didn't create inflation. No. It's those speculating Republicans that created inflation. It's those greedy, greedy business Republicans that own companies that are creating inflation. So what does this mean? He goes on and says, while the first stage is in play right now, the regular guy will get squeezed. His salary will not go up by as much as the prices of things. He'll have to cut back on luxuries. That may well include vacations. So the Airbnb people will be in trouble and many Airbnb places will go back to being regular rentals or converted to owner-occupied properties. I wrote next to that paragraph one word, opinion. It's just pure speculation. There's really no facts in hiding this. In fact, um, hotel motels are busier than they've ever been. So it hasn't affected them yet. But maybe it's because yet they haven't got into this phase as far as it. So the next phase, the next part of his argument is when it becomes clear that stage one isn't working, in other words, inflation is still rampant, they will go to stage two. They will increase the reserve requirement for banks. Imagine that a bank has a 10% reserve requirement with $10 million in cash and $100 million in loans. Then the Fed Reserve says, hey, guys, new reserve requirement is 12.5%. You need to reach that number within 60 days or we'll put your bank into receivership. So in other words, they'd have to go from having $10 million cash, they'd either have to reduce their loans or they'd have to increase their cash to get to that reserve amount. They've done this before. I've seen it done. But I don't know that it will also in itself keep them from raising interest rates. I guess the point he's making is they can't raise interest rates because... The federal government can't afford to pay interest rates. So they're just going to squish the economy on the other side. They're going to bang up the banks, jam up the banks, and make them jam you up. So suddenly, banks need to get rid of $20 million worth of loans. And the bank cannot just sell the loans because all of the banks will be in the same situation. Banks will freeze all lending while they struggle to bring the reserve requirements into compliance. That will bring down the hurt on all the people who have three-year interest-only loans and have to refinance them. So right now what's going on, the only way you can actually make a deal work is to put it on these three-year interest-only adjustable rate finance loans. That at the end of three years, boom, you got to refinance this thing. But at the end of three years, you won't be able to, he's saying, because banks are not going to be able to, willing to lend. Now, if it happens that way, it happens. But identically, if they raise interest rates and you get to the end of these three years, and they haven't done that to the banks, they're still going to have a situation where the loans won't underwrite anymore. Because if the interest rates are higher, then the debt coverage ratios won't be low enough to allow for these deals to get refinanced. So whether he's right in the way it goes, because his argument is the government won't let interest rates go up because they can't, or if just simply interest rates go up because they have to use, the Fed has to use that to fight inflation, no loans will be available. Owners will try to sell, but they won't be able to because no one can get a loan. 
Only cash buyers will be able to buy. And my friends, 2008, that's exactly what happened. I tripled my net worth between 2008 and 2010 simply because I had access to cash. We were cash liquid. And so we went around and bought stuff 50 cents on the dollar. Started out, we're buying at 70 cents on the dollar. Then it went down to 60 cents, then to 50 cents on the dollar. Last property I bought on this downward spiral, I bought for $8,000 a door. And it had originally sold just a few years previous for $50,000 a door. So whatever percentage that is, 10, 15%, 20%, whatever it is. The bottom line is, this part of his argument is the end result, is accurate whether it comes from the interest rates, whether it comes from the bank closing down. However, in 2008, I think his argument is really closer to what really went on. We'll be right back with the Del Wamsley Radio Show. live to 100% virtual. And you know, the funny thing is, is that nobody wants to go back to work now that work from home, right? So now my members are like, well, Dell, we want to keep those virtual things open because now I know all the people in Miami and I know all the people in Chicago. I know all the people now know each other from all over the country because of these virtual events. The free workshop, How to Retire in Five Years or Less, is online. Go to lifestylesunlimitedworkshop.com. Today we're hitting the mailbag. And in this segment, I'm going to start with an email here that says, uh, are we on track? Dell, this is our one-year anniversary with Lifestyles Unlimited, asking for advice to make sure we are on track to hit our goal. I'm 61 years old and planning to leave my long corporate career in retail this summer to go full-time into real estate. My wife is 46 years of age and has a career in finance and accounting and plans to work at a W-2 job just as long as she needs to. She loves real estate also. Together... Our net base income is $16,000 a month, and we live on $6,500. Now, there's a very important thing to learn from this, guys. Please listen to this if you're out there and you've never thought about this. They make $16,000 a month. They live on $6,500. That's the kind of stuff I've talked to you about. I've lived on 50% of what I made or less my entire life. You just have to get used to doing it because $6,500 a month isn't broke. $16,000 a month is pretty good, but they're living on $6,500, and then we invest the rest. We both bring home about 50% of the total income. Our short-term goal to feel comfortable with no W-2 jobs is a passive income of $10,000 a month. Wondering if our plan is the fastest way to get there. In the last year, we sold most of our stock. I used my 401k money and we sold a single family house we owned for about three years and invested $650,000 in nine hybrid and passive deals. That should generate between 6 to 9% per year on average. As of today, most deals we see are looking more like 4 to 6%. So in other words, over the last three years, they were able to get into deals that pay 6 to 9%. The stuff that's coming out now is 4 to 6%. All right? Because why? Because prices are much higher. And uh, so it's harder to get a higher return in that. Now, keep in mind that that return is only cash flow based. It's not capital gains based and it's not uh, tax-deferred uh, base. So it's going to be a little bit more than that. goes on and says, in a couple of months, we're selling our property, primary home near Seattle, to downsize to a smaller, less expensive house. After taxes and all the fees, 
and purchasing a new primary house, we should have around 1 to 1.2 million in real estate. Our plan is to buy a small IRO and invest in more passive deals to hit our goal at 10,000 per month uh, as fast as we can. We have the skill set and the desire to do a lead deal if we would be if that would be faster. Long term, we want to travel like crazy and explore the world while we, mostly me, are young enough to fully enjoy it. And we want to spend our lives giving back. So what he's saying there is that, hey, I'm quite a few years older than my wife. I'm 61. She's 45. I want to start enjoying my life now while I still can. So we have a burning desire to be smart and follow the plan and financially free quickly. We'd appreciate any advice you have to give us. We're both passive certified and I'm core certified. So here's the deal, guys. You're looking at them having 650000 in these nine hybrids, and they're saying it's earning between 6 and 9%, so let's take halfway in between that. What would that be, about 8 That's putting out about 52000 right now. So to get there, they need another $68,000 more. There, they have a million two invested. They'd only need to earn about 5.6% return is all they need. So the answer to the question is what they're doing right now will get them there. But let's go further into it. They ask, is there any faster way, any better way? And I want to talk about three levels of leverage. A single IRO deal is the middle of the line deal. You have leverage of anywhere from 60 to 90% debt, and that's leverage. In other words, you have money being used to make you money that isn't your money. That's leverage. So an IRO is going to be very, very good. Now, let's say you want to be a lead. Well, a lead investor, which is a syndicator, puts a deal together and brings other people's money into it, has the 80% leverage of the loan, but now is borrowing in somewhere between 10 and 20%, depending on what they make the lead investor put into the deal, Anywhere from 10 to 20%, we'll just say another 15%, you now have the leverage of somewhere around 95%. Much more leverage, much higher rate of return. I did a deal one time, and in fact, it was a deal I talked about in the last segment where I bought a property for $8,000 a door, and I put in $100,000 of my money. All of my partners that put up money made 185% on their money, but I ended up making 3000 percent on my money. Why? Because I earned the money from the debt, I earned the money from my investment, and I earned the money from everybody else's investment. So I had massive leverages. I took 20% ownership of the deal as the syndicator. So 20% of all these profits, and there were massive profits, came to me. And then plus whatever I bought, which I bought probably another 5%. So I got 25% of all the profits. A quarter of this gigantic deal went to me. But what does that do to the passives? Well, the passives, whereas I was making 3,000%, the passives were making 185%. What did the deal produce? The deal probably produced 500%, but they didn't get 500. They got 185 because they gave a portion of that profit away to the lead, which was me in this particular case. So these people ask, is that the fastest way I can do this? Is there a better way? And they say they've got 650000 in passive deals. They're going to do one small or one small IRO and then some more passive deals. I suggest 
that's not the fastest way they could do it. In fact, 30 years experience proves it's not the fastest way to do it. It's not the way I made my money. Most of us over here made a lot of money to get really wealthy by being syndicators. Now, some of us afterwards, after we did a really good job, made a lot of money, decided I, I don't like investing other people's money because it's more of a job to have to worry about other people's investments than it is just to worry about your own. And so I stopped syndicating. And many, many of these people here have stopped syndicating. So in this particular family, if they want to get out of that job right away and get traveling right now, they should probably do a syndication instead of doing all these passives. Now, it wouldn't hurt them to do an IRO, but again, they would just have more leverage with the syndication and they would be able to grow their money much quicker and get to their goals much quicker. So whenever you look at the situation, going out there and being a syndicator is the fastest way to make a lot of money. Being an IRO, owning your own deal, whether it be a house, a fourplex, or an apartment complex, is the middle of the line way to make money because there's leverage there. And being a passive is actually the slowest way. Now, why do people, in fact, a very large percentage of people take and pick passive? Well, there's a really good reason. What does the word indicate? You're totally passive. That means you can still keep your job and not have to worry about doing the work on the deal. You don't have to locate. You don't have to evaluate. You don't have to get a loan. You don't have to sign for the debt. You don't have to operate. You just are going to be the passive. You're just going to be passive. You're going to give them the money and wait for the checks to come in the mail. It's the money in the mailbox syndrome. So for a very large percent, I would say 70% of Lifestyles members decide that passive is the way they want to start because it allows them to keep their job and start getting their feet wet in some deals. Watch how the lead investor puts the deal together, how they locate, evaluate, negotiate it, contract it, finance it, operate it, and then refinance it or liquidate it. They get to go through the whole process without having their name their signature on the line for the debt, or having any more of an amount of money at risk than what they feel comfortable. Remember, as a passive, one of the things you should do is diversify your investments. Digging into the mailbag, and uh, here in the last segment of the show, we've got an interesting email from a gentleman that uh, wanted to talk about some of his goals. It says, Dell, as the years wind down, I want to share with you a rather large goal I accomplished yesterday. It is a fitness goal of running 1,000 miles. You've talked in the past about getting big rocks into the pickle jar first. Problem was, I never had the time to accomplish the fitness goal of this nature when I worked for a W-2 job. Like you, I agree, getting physically fit creates more benefits besides just being in shape. My goal requires an action plan of weekly and monthly mile targets. It required consistency and determination. It required tracking, making adjustments, and constantly checking whether the majority of the miles were run outdoors and North Carolina summers are hot and humid. It required waking up early in the weekends when I didn't always want to get up. I truly believe it is easier to run a marathon than to run 1,000 miles in a year. Why? Because a marathon takes a few months of training leading up to one big event. Once it's over, that's it. With this goal, I held myself accountable to bring it. Every day, I had to be consistent and persevere for 12 months. Not an easy task for most. I know you're a big fitness guy and thought you might like this story 
you've inspired me in more ways than just becoming a real estate investor. Maybe next year I'll run 1,200 miles to push myself to greater heights. Wish you and yours a Merry Christmas. So, guys, think about this. You can't stay on a diet for six weeks. Or you won't stay on a diet. You could, but you won't. You can't put together a string of successes longer than just a few days. When you think about the goal of running 1,000 miles, and it doesn't matter whether it's running 1,000 miles or losing 100 pounds or bulking up to be a bodybuilder and winning a contest or any other accomplished goal in mind, it has to do with the discipline necessary to accomplish something like this. And as I look back and I think about being young, when I didn't have any money, when I didn't really have the knowledge of how to do what I got away with doing. When I was a little fat kid when I was young and turned out to end up being a bodybuilder, competitive athlete at multiple levels, all that stuff really had to do with only one thing. It had to do with commitment, with the ability to stick to something, to follow it through. That commitment can make anything happen. Now, if you do it smart, it happens a lot quicker. <laughs> if you do it wrong, it doesn't happen at all. And I think Vince Lombardi said it best when he said, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. So there is some reality to the fact you have to do it the correct way. But even if you have the correct method in front of you, you have to be diligent. You have to stay with it. I find myself many times making decisions. And like this year, I've already gone after five or six pieces of real estate. I've got two in contract right now. And every once in a while, I wake up and say, why am I putting myself through this again? Why am I going out and buying this stuff? Why don't I just take the money and go buy myself expensive yacht and expensive second home and cars? And why don't I just spend the money? I mean, I've got plenty of income coming in now. Why do I need more income? Why do I keep buying more income producing assets? And it comes down to a discipline that I created a long time ago that said, I'm going to be in a little bit better shape every year. I'm going to be a little bit wealthier every year. I'm going to be a little bit happier every year. I'm adding something every year. This week for Valentine's Day, we accomplished a goal. Melissa had wanted a Pomsky, which is a Pomeranian and a Husky mix. A cutest little miniature Husky I've ever seen. And I've always wanted a big Husky. So what did we do for Valentine's Day? We went and bought ourselves some Huskies. And as we're sitting here going through this thinking, here we are, I'm 65 years of age, and we were laughing because it's like, it's like getting twins. They're babies. You have to take care of them all day long, three or four times a day. You've got to walk them and feed them and, and poop them. And cute as heck, though. But the bottom line was, it was just one of those weird goals that we had had for a long time. And so it got stuck into our life. And I'm sure within a few weeks or months, when these things are potty trained and we've got them to training classes and they're all obedient and they're already loving as can be, we'll be so happy that we did it. 
But to do it, we had to go through it. And when I woke up two days ago at 5.30 in the morning to take care of these howling babies, and yesterday at 6 o'clock in the morning, and today at 6.30, I think they're getting better. They're sleeping a little bit longer each day. And the first day, just the whole kennel was piles and piles of mess. Second day, much less. Today, much less. They're starting to learn. And I see discipline, dedication, commitment, paying off in just a few days. And I see the unlimited pleasure that these animals are going to bring to our lives. But we had to go through it. We had to make the decision. And these were not cheap animals, I guarantee you. These are hybrids. They're very expensive, and we bought them from breeders, or AKC. And they've got the papers and the whole bit. But the bottom line is that's irrelevant. I have the money. It was the commitment is what we had to figure out. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. The information and opinions you hear on the Del Wamsley Radio Show are those of the host, Del Wamsley, his guests, and his callers, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of this station, its affiliates, its management, or advertisers. The Del Wamsley Show is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult a professional regarding your personal investment needs. Nothing presented on the Del Wamsley Show constitutes an endorsement, recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or security.